0: no taxation
1: without representation 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation no representation
0: in the capital of this nation 200 years of
1: exploitation Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Sanchez, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So you can call in if you have a question or Skype in a question. Uh, you can call in at 888-627-6008. Uh, we have a very special guest tonight, so I don't know if we'll take, if we get any questions, if we'll, if we'll take very many because, uh, uh, we want to spend as much time as we can with senator mary landry we're so lucky to have her on the show senator landry, landry served in the united states senate for 18 years she was the chair of the state i'm sorry the chair of the senate uh, energy and natural resources committee also a chairman of the Small Business Committee, and uh, she led and sponsored the Small Business Job Act of 2010, which helped create and retain more than 650,000 American jobs. So I certainly want to ask her a little bit about that tonight because uh, that's so important these days to America as we try to rebuild. So welcome to the show, Senator. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you, uh, Senator, and thank you for having me. I'm happy to join you and your co-host tonight to have a good discussion about a variety of different issues that you guys want to talk about. I'm happy to throw in a few of my own, and so thank you so much for asking me.
1: Thank, thanks for being here. Maria, unfortunately, folks, is, was uh, had had something come up, and she couldn't be with us. I'm sure that she's going to be uh, very sad that she didn't have the opportunity to talk to the senator <laughs> But but let me start out, Senator Biden. This this is something that's bothered me for a long time. Uh, Yesterday there was a special election in Louisiana. Troy Carter got elected to replace uh, uh, Cedric Richmond, who has gone into the Biden administration. Uh, When I was reading about this um, about his election, I learned that he's the only Democrat that's part of the congressional delegation from louisiana and uh and um, you know that basically louisiana is a red state now i started working for jimmy carter uh when georgia was a blue state that turned red and looks like it may be turning blue again um what is it you think that turned a like, when i first started in politics uh louisiana was a solidly democratic state uh have we missed something as Democrats uh where we're not connecting with certain groups of people anymore? What do you think turns the the these you know traditional democratic states red?
0: Well that's uh that's a big question. Let me just say first of all, uh congratulations to um an important question. I want to just first of all congratulate uh Congressman um elect troy carter Uh, troy served as a state senator uh, for several years he was also on the city council in new orleans i've known troy for many many years he's been an outstanding leader in our community um and had a great deal of broad-based support now he ran um you know against or they ran against each other karen carter peterson they're not related but of course their names are similar but Karen Carter Peterson served as chair of our Democratic Party. She also had really an extraordinary background in politics, having served as a state rep and a state senator, very active, obviously, in national politics and had quite a few endorsements. So it was a tough race. We would have been well served by uh, either one, uh, but Troy edged out uh, the race, and I think he'll represent our city and region very, very well. Um, he'll be a strong Democrat for sure, but he, he's also a practical politician and will try to work across party lines if he if if possible. That's getting less and less uh, possible these days, unfortunately. But I think Troy, um, with his background and experience, uh, will be able to do that. Uh, he's very even keeled, um, very focused on criminal justice issues. Um, and I think very focused on, you know, bringing home the bacon in the most, you know, appropriate way I can say every legislator needs to be focused on helping, you know, move federal dollars home to help with a lot of different issues when you can do that. And New Orleans is a city that's a great city. Everyone loves it. Um, you know, Baton Rouge is a beautiful city and places in between. But, you know, we're also have, you know, have some. Some challenges, some economic challenges, and I think Troy will work hard uh, to help us um, across the board, whether it's housing, education, developing, or infrastructure. So, congrats to him, and I think, um, yeah, he'll be a good addition to the uh, to the Congress here.
1: Are, are we missing? Uh, that's great, and I, and and. Uh, um but are we missing something as democrats that, you know it really amazed me senator and i don't know how you feel about this but when donald trump got elected and we looked mm-hmm. at the people we looked at the people that voted for him uh a lot of those people in my opinion should have been democrats people mm-hmm. when i start when i started in 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 politics Democrats uh, represented working people, union people. I don't know. Excuse me. I don't know how a guy who grew up, you know, with a silver spoon in his mouth and went to Ivy League colleges convinced working class people that he understood their pain. Do we? Do mm-hmm. we as Democrats have to accept some responsibility for that?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me say this. I do recall, um, you know, a time when our state was uh, was democratic, of course. But you, you might remember, um, Senators, some of those years um, were represented by Democrats who were, you know, anti-integration, uh, yeah. anti-civil rights. They were, yeah. you know, Dixiecrats from the South. And so, you know, I wasn't, and I know you not, and many people are not, you know, proud oh. of that history of the Democratic Party. And so the Democratic Party went through um, a needed um, reorientation uh, in the South so that now our party is much more, much more progressive on racial issues, much more focused on racial equity. And the Republican Party, which had been the Civil Rights Party in the United States, has completely flipped to become, you know, in large measure, I'm not saying this is true of every Republican in the South, but it's basically become, you know, anti-diversity, anti-affirmative action, you know, anti-recognition of systematic racism in our society, and Democrats have become the more progressive party. But you're right to remember when Bill Clinton ran for president, um, which was a long shot, you know, he had... Um, right trying to to get the reins of power back from um, a more conservative uh, Republican, um, you know, smaller government, less government, less effective government, um, focus on volunteer effort. Uh, He successfully ran that campaign and carried Louisiana. He carried Arkansas, and he carried Georgia. So, you know, there were three southern states um, that... But since the civil rights era, you remember when Lyndon Johnson passed the civil rights bill in 1964, he basically right. said, I've signed the bill, but I've basically lost the, the Democrats in the South. So, you know, I am, I am not disheartened by this realignment. I believe that the Democratic Party needed in the South to come to terms with its racial past um, and... And eliminate it or try to eliminate it as best we could. And so we just have to build back up with a broad base of, um, you know, African-Americans that have been basically loyal to the party, even though through even though even through those tough times. Yes. But now build a broad base of black, brown, white voters in the South who are really focused on government working for people and. Um, at the lower end of the scale and middle income. And so it, it's, a, it's a work in progress, but it, um, you know, I think this it's not just the South senators, you know, um, yeah. this whole country is just racked by racial issues that we've not resolved. And the killing of George Floyd and the hundreds of others, thousands of others have raised um, this awareness, African-Americans and others at the hands of rogue police officers, not every police officer, as you know. And then also the pandemic has laid bare, you know, the inequities uh, to be really seen just up front on the news every night. So our country is being called to a higher plane. It's being called to really recognize this injustice. That work is going to have to be done in every state, south and north, east and west, every county, And not only are conversations going to have to be had, but laws are going to have to be changed. So I'm not discouraged about the pathway of the Democratic Party. This realignment needed to take place. I was part of helping it, and I'm proud of making that change to the New South. My father was a civil rights leader. My brother, the mayor of New Orleans, was a civil rights leader. We've had a strong partnership with the Morial family and the Francis family in New Orleans. And you know fought battles to you know advance opportunity and equity for everyone. So you know Stacey Abrams is showing us the way in Georgia and she's been a phenomenal leader. Um so intelligent and cool and poised and yes, under you know I mean so much yeah. pressure but she is really showing you know showing some fortitude and strategic thinking about how to pull middle-class voters and this economic message, which is the true message of the Democratic Party. And it's a false message of the Republican Party. I mean, Trump right. was a, you know, I mean, he was a showman, snake yep. oil salesman, um, and people bought it. And that's a shame.
1: It is. And we should point out that, uh, you, you know, your dad, who was mayor in the 1970s, took a lot of criticism for for all that he did to promote uh, people of color into government jobs and stuff. He really was a civil rights leader. And, um, you know, uh, that's a legacy that that your brother and you have carried on. And we're all very grateful for that. Uh, I got to tell you, before we move on uh, very much further, that uh, one of the great experiences I had when I was 30 years old, I joined a thing called the, the Democratic Business Council, I went to a luncheon in New Orleans uh, when they found out I worked with Jimmy Carter, worked for Jimmy Carter, worked on his campaign. They sat me at your dad's table uh, next to Lindy Bob's. (laughs) It was was an amazing experience. I was the only one at the table under 50 years old, and your dad (laughs) went way out of his way. To make me feel comfortable and make me feel uh, like I was a member of the club, and I will never forget that. What a dear, dear person he was. You know, I I really think that's how you tell the character of a person when they're when, when you see them doing something that that you know there's there's nothing in it for them, right? They're they're just they're just stepping out to to make sure they're doing the right thing, and and he made me feel so comfortable, and it's it's a great experience. By the way, I understand that he turns ninety-one soon. Uh, So that's amazing. And my father is doing well.
0: He and my mother have uh, been um, happily and still so much in love. It's um, something to behold and to see. And very close. Our family is very close. They raised uh, they've raised nine children and thirty-seven grandchildren, ten great grandchildren, and um, everybody lives still pretty much about ten minutes. from the house uh, in New Orleans where we all grew up, uh, right in Broadmoor, which was, of course, a neighborhood, one of the many neighborhoods destroyed in Katrina, but we're all back. And, um, you know, it's a very uh, middle-class, homeowner neighborhood, um, very, very integrated in the city, and that's the way we grew up. And, yes, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was led by extraordinary African-American leaders and scholars and lawyers and writers and activists, but... Men like my father were a bit ahead of their time, and they stood up when a lot of people ran or sat down and he opened up city hall um, I think before my father was and the city was about forty percent african American at the time. now it's probably uh, 60%, sixty percent sixty sixty three percent but it was about forty five percent when he was elected mayor, so he wouldn't have been elected without the support of the African American community and you know so you know it was a coalition of black and white voters uh, that elected him and he never forgot it and he did everything he could to promote the racial integration of some of our mardi gras crews the, of course hiring practices at city hall hired the first african-american chief of staff he um helped elect the first african-american to the city council first african first italian american to the supreme court first african american to judgeships and you know his legacy just goes on and on and and doing all that you know was a wonderful husband to my mother and a father to the nine of us um so he's a pretty amazing guy and um i'm very proud of him and you know, in his legacy of, of civil rights. And then when Mitch became mayor many years later, he really started and um, the initiative of removing, not started, but made quite uh, clear in an extraordinary speech that he delivered at Gallier Hall the reason to remove these Confederate statues that had yeah. just been up. And we walked in their shadows, you know, in the shadows of these statues as white people and never really, I didn't, let me just speak for myself, give much thought really sadly, to how maybe my black friends um, and neighbors would feel until, you know, really Mitch gave that uh, impassioned speech and, um, and action by getting the cranes and removing Robert E. Lee from Lee Circle in New Orleans, which was no small feat. Not and that. it started a wave of consciousness, you know, around the country that, um, you know, we don't want to... Uh, to not remember history, but we also don't want to honor. Um, we want to honor goodness, and we want to honor grace, and we want to remember kindness and compassion. We don't want to honor meanness and cruelty and selfishness and brutality. And that's when you put up a sign of the Confederacy, a, a monument. That's what you're honoring: brutality and the inhumane treatment of other human beings. And I think the country is going through a real awakening right now, and um, and it's happening not just in the South, where it really needs to, but all over the country, um, all over the country, in every place. It really needs some, we need some reflection and action.
1: That really is the truth. And, you know, I remember an experience uh, 30 years ago, standing in Montgomery, Alabama, at the uh, Civil Rights Memorial, and looking up, which is in the shadow of the Capitol building in Montgomery, and looking up and seeing the Confederate battle flag on the yeah. uh, on the Capitol, and thinking to myself, "How strange is this you know that, that okay. so yeah. yeah, and I know those things those things die really hard. Well, you have a reputation, Senator, for bringing people together you You had that reputation in the Senate. And we're so divided right now. What do you think of that? Is it, it, can we, you think we can reconcile uh, the two sides right now? I just... uh, I've, I've I've seen the Republicans mm-hmm. stand up against everything the Democrats are trying to do, and and mm-hmm. you know any advice on how we try to reconnect people and 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 bring them back together and get them talking? I think that's one of the reasons we elected President Biden is that we we saw him as somebody that that could potentially do this. Do you think we can get mm-hmm. this done? Well, I'm
0: honestly. I mean, we'll get through it, but I'm honestly not sure how or when. And I say that because this polarization right now is different than anything that I've experienced in my political career, which now is basically over 40 years. And and even in times that I've read about, you know, I've I've tried to be a student of history. I'm not no expert, but, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, you know, 1900s, you know, 20th century, um, in the U.S., and I've just never seen a time where people, where the sides can't even agree on what the facts are or the truth. You know, I mean, when we debated welfare reform, let's just take that, which is a big Bill Clinton initiative, welfare reform. You know, the basic Facts were agreed to. You know, they just were agreed to. We, we might have had different opinions of people on welfare and what they were doing and what they weren't doing, what they should do. But the basic facts were agreed to. We knew how many, this and that, you know, what race, where they were. It was mostly, you know, it was predominantly Africans, Americans in the South, but in other places it was, you know, predominantly white people on welfare. We could understand that and figure out what we might do. But, Michael, the problem today is, Senator, is with Fox News and these alternative facts, it's like Mitt Romney said on the floor. I mean, he said it just perfectly clearly, perfect and clear, until we can agree and tell the truth and people argue what the truth is. and So it's it's really, really difficult. Um, And the insurrection at the Capitol – to have 100 members of the House of Representatives, um, many of whom represent parts of Louisiana, <laughs> over one after the insurrection occurred, after the mob came to the Capitol to kill and hurt members of Congress and the vice president of the Republican Party, they still walked back to the floor later that night wow. and, and almost as if it didn't happen. Like, even though we saw with our own eyes and felt with our own hearts that anger, they just sort of made up this alternative reality that, well, it was a peaceful protest. They really weren't, you know, banging on the doors. They really weren't punching police officers, although the videos are pretty clear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, honestly, um, I I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but I really think it's just a hard slog. And and this is, um, I think we have to do more about the the root cause. Trump did not cause this divisiveness. He threw gasoline on it. He flamed. He inflamed. He exacerbated an already horrible, you know, difficult situation, yeah. much to his uh, forever shame. But he didn't create it. And I think a lot of it is the racial um, misunderstandings and tensions and Failing to really understand the history of of race in this country, America has a long way to go, and I think we've pushed a lot of things under the rug. We don't want to talk about it. Like you know, after the you know Civil War, well, let's just get back to work. After World War II, oh well, let's just get back to work. After War. World War you know World World War II, and we have to address the systematic racism not just through our police, but in everything. And I think the country. And settle, and settle on the notion that we're going to be a multiracial, but um, pro-democratic, God-fearing, you know, we're not one religion, but we're generally a country that believes in a higher power, and unite Mm -hmm. around those values. And I don't know, Michael, I think it's a very, very tough time.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I... Could, anybody could have said it better. I think that's exactly right. And let me ask you, I, I've got I mentioned this before we got on the air. Uh, one thing that I didn't real about, realize about you, Senator, is when I did the math, I saw that you were elected to the Louisiana State Legislator, Legislature at 24. Is that right? Is my math right? 24? What inspired you? It was
0: actually you know, it was actually at twenty three and twenty um, three. I look back oh on that God. and yes, and I just I just tickle my I just laugh at myself because I think I was just so young and and um, I look at my daughter now who's that same age and yeah. and my son twenty nine and I have nieces and nephews that are that age and I and I think what was I thinking? But you know I grew up very politically aware as mm-hmm. a oldest child of uh, the mayor of the city, and I loved the work that my father did. I kind of knew at an early age that I did not want, I mean, I love my mother, I admire my mother, but even as a kid, as seven years old, I thought, I'm not going to stay home and wash clothes all day. I'm just not
1: going to do it. well, nine As, you know, kids, not the, what else can you do with nine did, kids, right, was, except
0: wash but, clothes know, all day. kids, I mean, all she did was cook, clean, wash clothes, yeah. and we had a little bit of help in the house, but not much, and I thought, oh, my gosh, let me, I mean, my mother is like a saint, and she still does that to this day, I mean, she's still, um, you know, just a, an extraordinary, you know, quote, at-home mom that, you know, ran all over town helping us do everything, but... Yeah. I just was inspired by um, my father's work and went to LSU and became aware from a, you know, very sort of almost sheltered upbringing in New Orleans. You know, our city is very parochial, very Catholic, and very an integrated city. And, And then went and, you know, learned, went to the legislature and learned about Louisiana, which is parochial in its own way, um, can be very, you know, segregated in spots, very conservative in spots, but just had a passion for help in the state uh, to be more inclusive and progressive. And so got got elected to the legislature and then, you know, worked my way eventually up to the United States Senate.
1: Um, it's an and, amazing career, Senator, and, and you know, and we're all the better uh, we're a better country that you decided to do that. But but yeah, it just amazed me at such young, I have a twenty three year old, like you say, and, and a twenty eight year old and, and yeah, you I know, just, our I, kids I,
0: the same age, yeah. yeah. But you know, Michael, I was, I was can... reading the paper this morning and, and I saw something that Nancy Pelosi said and I just have to, you know, share with our audience tonight. But I was reading the story in the paper today about how Nancy Pelosi pulled together the votes for the Affordable Care Act, which is gonna go down in history as one of the most significant votes cast, and I'm so proud that I cast, you know, this, quote, 60th vote in the Senate. Of course, every senator Mm -hmm. can say that because there were 60, you know, of the Democrats that did it. But, you know, Nancy, when the speaker was twisting arms to get those votes, she called her members and she said, let me tell you something, guys. You got um, elected not to keep this job but to do this job. And this is the doing that it takes. We have to get this done for the country. And, you know, I lost my last election in large measure over that vote. But every night I put my head on the pillow and I say to myself, I'd have done it exactly the same way. I mean, it's not about getting elected to office to keep your job. It's getting elected to do your job. And sometimes the job over the course of my 40 years was kind of easy. Not really ever real easy, but it was some years easier. Some votes are easy votes. Many votes are tough. It's hard to know the right thing to do. And then some votes you know you're going to cast, and it may end your career, but you know you have to do it. And that was just one of those votes. And so in politics today, we just need people to, to, you know, not try to keep their job, just do their job. And a lot of people are going to lose elections because it's so polarized, but it's the only way our country is going to progress to go forward. And um, so we shall see.
1: Well, you know, and I keep uh, in the back of my mind the dozen things that my grandmother used to tell me over and over and over again when I was being raised. And one of them is that God hates a coward. And, and, and I try to remember that because you're right. It's, it's top tough sometimes i've been on the election trail trying to get elected when somebody comes up and asks you a question and you know the answer you give them is going to make them vote for your opponent but you still have to give it any you know things things like a woman's right to choose or you know what you know and yeah you have it it's it's uh You have to be brave, and and on that note, can I tell you about an opinion piece I read that you wrote about the fence around the, the Capitol? You know, I used to live on Capitol Hill, and my wife and I... Uh, just love the fact that we could uh, walk across the capitol grounds we could play frisbee with our dog on in front of the yeah. capitol you should do that and and now we see this horrible horrible fence and I, and, and, and I've got to agree with you a hundred percent of what you said in the article about how um, you know uh, it makes us look like we lost the battle it's it's you know so the, I know they're starting to take pieces of it down. But we really need to take it all down, don't we?
0: Absolutely, that fence has to come down, and that's not to say that security has to collapse. But the right. fence has to come down, and we have to have um, better security using technology, better trained officers. You know, perhaps you know portable barricades that can be moved out in the thought. You know, in the in the face of a threat. Mm-hmm. But this this country and the democracy the openness in which our democracy should rest in open access to our public buildings it's bad enough that we all have to go through you know metal detectors which right. was of course instituted in large measure in this country in every public building you know state and federal for sure and many local buildings um after the 9 you know 911 attack but you know we just cannot live in a barricaded society with fences around our you know our our public buildings it's It's an affront to everything we stand for, and so I'm glad the outer perimeter fence came down with they had the razor right. wire around it, but also you know the capitol grounds are not just used by all the people and I live here on Capitol Hill as well, not just by our neighborhood, you know this great neighborhood that surrounds the capitol but it's used by people all over the city and region and world that come right. and walk those rounds and sit on the grounds and watch concerts. And, you know, when it snows, but, you know, everybody comes and brings their sleds, you know, to go up and down the hills of the right. Capitol. And it's just, it's tragic. And so it has to come down and I just hope it gets down sooner than later. Um, and, Hopefully, we'll close this ugly and horrific chapter by putting a lot of people in jail where they belong right. for what they did and their violent um, and criminal access to the Capitol that day um, yeah, and I think it's shocking,
1: so.
0: and assaults. Yeah, and assaults and and deaths of you know resulted in the death of, of at least one police officer and injury to many others, both physically, emotionally. And mentally, many of the African-American offices had to listen to, you know, terrible racial slurs. Um, and then to watch United States senators and House members defend the protesters, you know, a- against the police, against the Capitol Police, um, and defend their hate speech is just horrible. Um, yeah. And, you know, protest. you know, protests don't have to be like, you know, Reverend Sharpton said, protests don't have to they have to be nonviolent they absolutely have to be nonviolent they don't have to be silent or quiet they just have to be nonviolent you know you can shout you can sing loudly you can shout loudly you can you know say your piece but you say it you know without violence but those protesters were way out of line
1: oh my they god yeah, yeah
0: they, they certainly were
1: and you know, I was arrested on Capitol Hill, and I went to trial. And the judge said to me, uh, "You are my hero. I, I really, I admire people that stand up for what they believe in." Uh, and then he he slammed his gavel down, found me guilty, and fined me a hundred dollars. He said, "Because even heroes can't sit in the middle of Constitution Avenue and block traffic." So, uh, but. But, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you can protest without without being violent. Yeah. Uh, and you know uh, one of the, one of the people that I'm sure admires you greatly and and you've worked with over the years is also trying to get the fences down. and that's our delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton. And as you oh, probably yeah. know, she just passed the DC statehood bill. Uh, uh you've always been oh, yeah. a, a strong So sub so, uh, so when you were on the subcommittee for appropriations okay. for DC you were always a strong supporter of our city and yeah. she just passed this bill in in the house but now we go into the senate so, mm-hmm. we have to develop a whole new strategy. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like we can't right. get rid of the filibuster right now, and we'll never get 60 Republicans. So, do you have any, I mean, 10 Republicans to make, uh, to, 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 uh, you know, close down cloture, uh, to invoke cloture? What, any, mm-hmm. any ideas on what, you know, how mm-hmm. we should approach the Senate? Differently than we than our approach in the House.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, um, yeah, the approach has to be completely different because um, even if you could bypass the filibuster rules, which the the Senate might decide to do on this issue because it's so important, um, and the district, it it it's just it's a fundamental, fundamentally democratic issue. And it is just shameful that the seven hundred thousand residents that live closest to the capital of the United States have the furthest standing in the Constitution. And this the the, the compromise or the the proposal that someone came up with to not requ- that we don't have to have a constitutional amendment. You know, by creating by law just a smaller district and then this, this the, 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 re, you know, the rest of the city can become a state. I mean, I was looking at this the other day, Michael. I'm sure you know this, Senator, but the District of Columbia is like the third or fourth wealthiest city in the country. I mean, no. I don't know why the government would not want to bring in a wealthy, thriving, economically stable, growing, extraordinary, you know, 51st state. I mean, it's not yeah. like you all, you bring nothing but strength. You don't, you know, you bring strength. You bring, it's going to help our country to have a 51st state. Now, you know, there are other places where, you know, if we brought in a state, you'd be bringing in a tremendous amount of debt or this or that. Now we can't talk. We already have a lot of debt. But, but the District of Columbia, 700,000 people, Um, It's got one of the greatest, strongest economies uh, in the country. Uh, It's one of the wealthiest cities. Um, And, you know, and people pay a tremendous amount of tax here to the federal government. Um, Mm -hmm. And so now the political issue is very plain and very clear. If the district gets to be a state, the district will elect, you know, 99% 99% will elect two Democratic senators, right. and, of course, that's the rub. The Republicans simply do not want to give that political advantage. So maybe a compromise can be reached or, um, I don't know, some deal, something Republicans really want and trade for this, I don't know. But it's going to take a different strategy. It is the right well, thing that, to do and we will be successful. Yeah. and yeah, and Congresswoman Norton, Delegate Norton, has been an amazing, extraordinary leader for this community for many decades.
1: Yes, she absolutely has. And, you know, it's It's very frustrating to sit here and hear uh, members of Congress say things like, we don't have enough bowling alleys or or car dealerships oh. to be a state. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a crazy. And, I, you know, I wanted to say 45 states including Louisiana and a lot of other states have come into the union without an airport or a car dealership because they came in before planes or cars were invented. So I really don't understand where in the Constitution it says that you have to have a car dealership, but uh, let, let Let me ask you another question. Since you were chairman of the Small Business Committee and you did so much work, I ran a small business for 25 years. We have 68,000 small businesses just in D.C. We know that they're the great economic engine of America and that they've just been devastated during this pandemic. What are the kinds of things we need to bring them back and make sure that they remain healthy?
0: Well, that's a very interesting question, and I'll say in broad, you know, just in broad terms, yes, the federal government has a role to play with, you know, the grants that they gave out through the, um, you know, the CARES Act and, of course, Mm -hmm. this infrastructure package, you know, bringing broadband to many places um, that don't have it will help small businesses grow. But honestly, the more I think about the rules and regulations and certificates and occupational licenses and zoning laws that small businesses and taxes have to pay. I think every city and county really needs to step back and take a look at the, you know, requirements for small businesses to start up in their city and really streamline the process. And, you know, you know, I think getting a group of mayors together and, and council members to focus on this and and here in the district, I mean, to open, uh, you know, to open a business in the district, you know, to get it built, to get it renovated, the permits that you need. I mean, it's got to be just maddening and that's not the federal government's responsibility. That's right. local government. And I think keep taxes as as low as possible on businesses in the city is also important and, you know, the the citizens of this city pay a tremendous amount of taxes, believe me, I know, because I'm a resident and, you know, and pay them. I used to pay Louisiana taxes when I was in the Senate because I was officially a resident of the state. But right. now I pay taxes in the district. Property taxes are high. Uh, high. Fees and services are high. And I think the city really has to to look at that and do its own work uh, to streamline um, you know, businesses that want to open up. Uh, people just don't have money to hire lawyers, and not always to hire lawyers and accountants, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, I mean, clearly, uh, the Small Business Administration can, you know, do more to make loans accessible. Um, uh, and, and, again, it gets back to a lot of, you know, businesses owned by African Americans and Hispanic leaders and community leaders um, and business leaders really need access to credit um, and capital. And there's, you know, study after study after study that shows that they just have not had equal access to the loans required to start their businesses. So there are a lot of things government can do, but it's not just a federal problem. And I think cities should do a, a, a refocus effort on that right now.
1: Well, you know, Senator, I want to give you an opportunity. I know you sit on the board of the Alliance of Public Charter Schools and Resources for the Future, and it seems like I don't know how you have enough uh, hours in the day. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about a few of those things, especially mm-hmm. the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. Since since I'm mm-hmm. an orphan, and uh, that's oh, I didn't know
0: that you were you were yeah. adopted when you were in
1: No, I was never adopted. I was lucky enough to have an older sister uh, who was a lawyer, was our first uh, college graduate in my family, and refused to let me fail. So when my parents were 15, when I was 15, rather, both my parents died, and my sister, I dropped out of high school, you know, I acted out. You're a mother, so you understand how little little teenage boys know. Yeah, my sister raised me. My sister just refused to let me fail and 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 I got an equivalency diploma, went to a community college, went to a four-year university, went to graduate school. Oh god all, bless her. Yeah, God bless you. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, God so, bless her and God bless you. And you know, and yeah. Michael that's a great example of what the Congressional Coalition for Adoption does, and we don't just focus, although our name is adoption, we don't just focus on adoption. What we focus on is the thought that every child in America or sibling group really needs to be in a a stable and nurturing and loving family as possible, and if something happens to that family um, or the family is unwilling or can't or won't or whatever or, you know, there's Serious mental illness, or you know, significant, lasting, relentless drug abuse, then children can't stay in a place where they are unsafe and can't be raised, and they need like your sister took you in, and you know, and helped to stabilize you, and so through kinship adoption or through you know, um, uh, kin- you know, guardianship. Legal guardianship, just to give that stability, and then domestic and international adoption. So the Congressional Coalition is 175 members of Congress. In these polarized times, it's one of the, it is the largest bipartisan bicameral caucus. It's really kind of uh, miraculous that we can keep very conservative and very liberal members together on this, and a racially diverse coalition of members to say. We believe children belong in families. They can't raise themselves, you know, obviously, um, and need loving support. So we want to do more to stabilize families before children are, quote, you know, removed. Um, children should never be removed from a family just because the family's poor. But sometimes children have to be raised by an aunt or a grandmother or a neighbor because it's too dangerous. In the biological situation, whatever it is, we can do more to help, you know, uh, vulnerable families. Yes, with housing and food and you know, job search and opportunity. Particularly, housing is a really tough issue. There's some great groups in the city. The Children's Law Center is doing a great job on that. There are other parts of the city that here and around the country, but. So, and, 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 and I, I guess I got involved in this um, as a child when I and he found a homeless child in my neighborhood when I was a teenager, and it just opened up my whole eyes to this world of children who are really just kind of left sometimes to be on their own devices, and I decided if I ever got in a place of power, I'd do everything I could to help reconnect them. So I've done that work. I helped to create this organization uh, many years ago when I got to the Senate and chair the board today, uh, and continue to do that work. And we're making progress. There's a lot of awakening going on um, with the racial inequities in the foster care system, and a lot of focus on correcting it, um, advancing the adoption of older children who have been in the system, helping kids that are aging out, and never, you know, no one, you know, their their parental rights were terminated and. They weren't able to be placed in another family, so helping them to get off to uh, an independent and secure life. So it's, it's a lot. It's, it's just been a passion of mine. My, both of our children are adopted domestic. My husband was adopted out of an orphanage when he was five years old. Wow. <laughs> so my whole family has been built through um, through adoption. I just believe every and if the world would be a much safer and better place, if, if every child had a, you know, nurturing um parent at home and, you know, and our communities would be a lot safer if that were the case as well. So anyway, on the other subject I just mentioned really quickly on charter schools, yes, I have to congratulate the city um, here of really opening up more options for public schools. These charter schools are public. They're not private. They're, you know, run by community groups or nonprofit organizations but they're public schools. They're just public schools that operate on a charter with um, pretty high accountability standards. And if you don't meet those standards, or if the children, I mean, the theory here, and in practice it's done, because there's pretty good oversight here in the city, about 50% of your schools are public charter and the other are public traditional, Um, you know, they're closed down, or not the school, but, you know, the leadership of the school is basically asked to leave and new leaders are brought in that can really focus on the needs of of the children. In New Orleans, we have a completely all-charter public school system. So any kid in New Orleans can register to go to any school. It doesn't matter what neighborhood they're in. Of course, we do it by lottery with sibling choice. The the, um, progress that our African-American children have made over the last and all children, but uh, we are predominantly an African-American, you know, city in New Orleans, has really been extraordinary compared to peer groups around the nation, and I think the record is pretty good here, too, in D.C. So I've, you know, spent a lot of time just really trying to help our public schools um, really try to meet the needs of Children in poverty. I mean, our public schools do great if you're in a wealthy district with wealthy um, families. Public schools do fine in, in some suburbs, in some parts of cities. But broadly speaking, when you look across the country, we're not doing a great job with our public schools in our pockets of poverty, which is about a third of our country. And so charter schools, for me, that's why I helped to start them. We're just trying to get a better, more flexible, child-focused um, options for kids that were being left behind, and we're making progress.
1: Well, you know, uh, there's not a clearer example of that of what you just said, I think, Senator, than Washington D.C., where my kids all went to school, public schools in in Northwest. And a lot of their friends went to Ivy League schools. They all went to great colleges. But yet, when I when I was first elected, 51% of the students in Anacostia High School dropped out. I couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. It was such a stunning, you know, as I said, I dropped out of high school. But it was such a stunning statistic to mm-hmm. me. I was one of two, I, I grew up in Montgomery County, which I'm sure you know well, white suburban mm-hmm. area of Washington, D.C., and I was one of two kids that dropped out of my high school of 2,000 kids, and and um, uh, in, in Anacostia High School, 51% of the kids, I couldn't imagine that more kids mm-hmm. dropped out than graduated, That that has changed mm-hmm. over the last few years, but yeah, that, that's so true. Uh, it's really uh, two different cities here in Washington. Yeah. So,
0: well, uh, and in Anacostia, I mean, the truth be told, in Anacostia, and I looked at these stats the other day, or recently, not the other day, but recently, most of the schools in Anacostia are traditional public schools. Yeah, Some are. of them, some charters. There's some charters there, but most of them are traditional public schools. And they're really not Doing very well I mean there you can you can see in terms of academics even when you compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges you know you take you know poor children and the poor children there black children here white children there they're just not but the city is reluctant to move to more charters so you, we've got to have a strategy to improve those you know the poor performing public traditional schools and if there are poor performing charter schools those have to be improved so that every child is in an excellent school, preferably in a neighborhood that they can get to with some, you know, with not too much difficulty. Now, some kids want to go across town to a specific school because that's the school they want to go to, and they should have access to it. But most kids, I mean, I went to a neighborhood Catholic school when I was growing up in my neighborhood. We walked to school every morning. but you know, most kids and most parents, I think, would like to have their kids kind of close to home. Mm -hmm. So that's our challenge in New Orleans. We're we're running some great schools. We have a lot of open access. You know, our graduation rates have gone from, um, you know, 50 percent to, eight. you know, in the 50s to the 80s, 85 percent. You know, we really are moving the needle. But we don't have a great school in every neighborhood yet, and that's really what our goal is. And I know Washington, but Washington and New Orleans, D.C. and New Orleans are two of the most progressive, most you know advanced in public education and continue to get better. Um, there's a little bit of good going on in Denver and Indianapolis and a few other places. There are lots of leaders of color now leading these public charter schools, and, um, And it's a civil rights issue, as you know. I mean, if you can't get access to a good education, I mean, you get behind and you never catch up.
1: Never catch up. Well, I got to ask you, somebody Skyped in this question, and I've got to ask you, Senator. They say that now, since you're a resident of Washington, D.C., if we get statehood, would you consider running to be one of our (laughs) first elected United States senators? I think it's a oh, great I am Sharon so from Pennsylvania writes this <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I want to volunteer on the spot to be your 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 uh volunteer campaign manager if you ever decide well, to do sister,
0: it thank you i'm very I'm very flattered, but my days of elective office are completely over, but I tell you um you know my friend Donna Brazil would be a great candidate uh, for the yeah. candidate I can think of, I can think and you yourself just served as a shadow so. I mean, you, we have a lot of talented people in the city um, that could run, and I'm sure it's going to be a very broad slate. But, um, no, my days of elective office are over, but I'm still very engaged or try to be through my law firm. I'm with a great firm here in town, Ben S. Fellman. Um, it focuses on environmental and um, uh, energy and environmental law. And we, you know, kind of pride ourselves on being bipartisan and A to Z. You know, we represent clean coal and wind energy and everything in between. And I'm doing a lot of work with the Climate Solutions Caucus, helping the Senate and the House form bipartisan core members who will try to work on Real solutions for climate. It's an exciting, exciting time. Uh, This is the decade that matters. President Biden has given us a lot of great leadership. Of course, Thursday was Earth Day. The whole world has been focused, you know, this last week, particularly on these issues. But, you know, it is the challenge of our time. And um, being from New Orleans and watching our city go underwater after Katrina, Senator, I don't have to tell you the horrors that... uh, What that was like, eighteen hundred people lost their lives. seventy percent of our neighborhoods were under twelve feet of water that stood for weeks. Um, you know it was it was just horrifying and that's happening in Norfolk. It could happen in Miami. It's happened in New York with Sandy. Boston is at risk. San Francisco is at risk. Seattle is at risk. We have so many coastal communities that are at risk because of these sea level rise. And I don't think people have really completely grasp how this isn't in the future. It's right upon us right now. And these mm-hmm. rainstorms, horrible flooding in Nashville last week just out of the blue. I mean, I could go on and on. So we have to all get serious. Um, and I know a lot of people in the city are working on it. I mean, some of the greatest brain power in the world lives in the city. And thank God a lot of these brains are focused on, you know, finding solutions that can get the planet cooler and keep our economy hot. <laughs> that yeah. is the thing. It's a so real challenge.
1: And, bad, and thank you so, so, keep so keep much. Cool. Well, Senator, believe it or not, we've run out of time. And I so appreciate well, you taking the time on a Sunday to be with us. I hope you will do me uh, one last favor. And the next time you see your dad tell him that uh, he made quite an impression on a young man uh 40 year almost 40, 35 years ago who's now an old man and still remembers <laughs> him kindly so so thank please you. give I him my fondest, re- fondest regards and and I hope we get to talk again uh, uh, at some point you've been an amazing guest and we so much appreciated thank you uh thank every you, night Senator. we get uh,
0: I invite you, yeah, you know, Angels and Adoption Gala next year to, as my guest. So I'll follow up with you on that. Oh, thank thank you, you so much.
1: And if you want to give a website address so people that are interested can get involved, please do, Senator.
0: Yes, it's um, uh, Congressional, you just have to Google Congressional Coalition um, for Adoption Institute, CCAI, um, and the website will come up and join us. Um, We've got all sorts of interesting programs and opportunities. So it's the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute, CCAI, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, and thank you so much, Senator Mary Landrieu. We end our show every week with a song that we uh, usually dedicate to our guests, and this goes out to uh, one of my new favorite people from Louisiana, Uh, This was a song that was actually written by the candidate, uh, U.E.P. Long, and uh, it's been interpreted and and redone by a great uh, uh, Southern musician. Uh, So here's Randy Newman with Every Man a King. Thank you, Mary Landry.